Amen. Wonderful. Appreciate that so much. I love that song. Thank you, Brother Tony, for the message. I love that uh, passage, and I came this close to preaching out of Ezekiel tonight, a different place, but that's absolutely wonderful, and thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to be back. We need to get right with it because I got a message that I need about an hour and 20 minutes, and I'm going to try to my best to squeeze it into an hour and 10 minutes, so I'm going <laughs> to... No, I, I'm, we're going to beat that, but I, I really do want to uh, get started in the Gospel of John chapter 6, if you'd open your Bibles there. And um, I'm going to talk to you just a second before we stand and read, and not because I feel like I need an introduction. I'm, I'm telling you this for a purpose, and it has to do with what I'm going to approach tonight, <clears throat> but um, I feel so blessed, and there are other, uh, there are other seasoned, okay, old preachers in here uh, besides me. And, uh, but I feel so blessed to have had the life that God has given me, um, having surrendered to preach when I was 16 years old, started out in the ministry when I was a couple of days full-time from being 22 years of age, still 21, and... and uh, so now for these past uh, 50, almost 58 years, been trying to do the work of the Lord. And um, I, I've actually had the opportunity to, to minister, be in the ministry in seven decades. Now, I haven't been in the ministry 70 years, but I'm, I'm privileged to have started out in the 1960s, and then you add it up, we're in the 20s and now 24. That's uh, in seven decades. And if you're paying attention, you, you've seen a lot. And you've seen a lot of change. And uh, you, you just, I made it my business. I was not a good Bible college student. I'm not proud of that. I went to Bible college if my first year. Had way more fun than you're supposed to have at a <laughs> good Bible college. And, uh, and then I got married to my high school sweetheart. She was also there at Bible college. She was a straight A student on all the lists that you would expect people of academia to be on. And I was on none of them. And in fact, I had to stay for summer school at the end in order to get anything written on my diploma that they handed me when I went across the platform. It was blank. And they said, if you go to summer school and do what you're supposed to do, then we'll fill it out. But I became a better student after I got married. And then made my mind once I got in the ministry and God started working in my life that I, I am going to be a lifetime student. And I'm 78 years old and I'm a learner. I'm a student. I've had the privilege of teaching in our Bible college and preaching to young men and women a lot. And I am not ashamed at all to tell them I am a learner. I'm not an expert in anything. And, and if a person gets to the point where they believe they can no longer learn, that's when their usefulness and their spiritual life is going to go the wrong way. There's no question about that. So I've tried to observe and tried to pay attention. And uh, out of the years, I pastored for 36 of those years in the last uh, 13, going on 14 years now. I've just been doing what I did a lot while I was pastoring is preaching revivals and missions conferences and preachers meetings and all of that kind of thing. And so I've got to be uh, around the country. I think uh, I kind of didn't intend to, but I just kind of jotted down through the process of time and I keep a journal 
and I've preached in over 600 churches through the years, many of them many times. And so I, I've been around, I spend a lot of time with preachers and I spend a lot of time in preacher talk and pastor work and ministry work and such as that. And uh, one of the things I get uh, asked a lot now when you get old, whether you know anything or not, people think you should anyway. And so they start asking questions that I may not have heard uh, earlier on. And what are you seeing, Brother Sam? And what are you hearing? And what's going on? And on and on. And uh, I'm hearing a whole lot uh, about the um, fact that there are so many that would have been of the ranks of the independent fundamental Baptists. And I am one of them. And I'm not going to stop using the word fundamental but because of the connotation that some perceive uh, out there because it's a good word. I'm not ashamed to be a fundamental Baptist, not at all. And I am uh, dogmatic and we should be till death uh, embracing what is fundamental to biblical Christianity and what is fundamental to New Testament church life what is fundamental to the whole process of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are those that are almost hyperventilating because there seem to be so many young men and not always young men that are leading their churches uh, a different direction and a different way and are departing from what I would call the old path. I'm, I'm not embarrassed about that phrase either. <laughs> And, and are departing from it, and, and they're very, very concerned about it, which it is concerning, but it's not really anything new. It's not really anything new. And some of the things that people are saying now are unprecedented. It's just really people's way of revealing, I don't know anything about history. That's basically what it is. Because a lot of what we are seeing now, I've had young men say to me, well, Brother Sam, you, you don't understand. We're fighting the version issue, which we were fighting in the 1960s. When the good news for modern man, the New Living Bible came out in the 1960s. And that was sort of the beginning of the plethora of versions that have been coming out ever since. And uh, so, yeah, we've been there. Yeah, but you don't understand Calvinism is real. Yeah, which we were having fistfights in the dorms about <laughs> when I was in Bible college because a stinking Calvinist would stick his head up once in a while and the fight was on. You know, somebody said, you didn't really have fistfights. Well, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> so, and then there were people, yeah, but uh, the matters of personal separation and everything, which we were fighting, let's not forget that the 1960s was the time of the coming of the miniskirt, as well as the rock and roll revolution was in full swing and full swing. In fact, the 1960s, when I started out, the 1960s is what Time Magazine called in reviewing the 20th century, they called the 1960s the decade that won't go away. Because what we are dealing with so much in this day and time started out in the moral uh, and the uh, spiritual and the moral revolution of the 1960s. And anybody studies sociolo sociology would tell you something very clearly along that line there. And so these things are not really anything brand new. And in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, that's the chapter about the feeding of the 5,000. 
Now, who doesn't like to preach about that? But that's not really what I'm going to preach about. I'm going to preach about what happened after the feeding of the 5,000 and what was going on there when Jesus' ministry, if I can have your attention here, when Jesus' ministry was so intriguing and drawing such multitudes uh, that Jesus at one point, 615 says, that he went into a mountain place alone because they wanted to, he knew they would like to take him and make him king. And they were looking at the idea of the Messiah uh, sitting on the throne of David and restoring Israel to prominence in the world and liberating Israel from the awful oppression of Rome. And that's what they were looking for in their Messiah, including the disciples, the 12, who were constantly fussing about who's going to sit on his right hand, who's going to sit on his left hand. And they're not thinking then about what you and I are thinking about when he establishes his reign upon this earth. They were thinking that that was what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to relieve them from the oppression of Rome, restore Israel to its former glory. He'd sit on the throne of David and reign. And Jesus knew that there were some so excited about the miracles and the coming of so many people, the multitudes that just poured in and poured in. Sometimes it says multitudes. Multitudes are like this. Great multitudes are like this. And they kept coming. And Jesus knew what was taking place and what was going on. And here in chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. Amazing. But it's more than just the loaves and the fishes. That is the loaves that were, um, that were multiplied uh, to feed 5,000 men alone. Uh, it's not just that those few fishes uh, were made by Jesus to feed uh, the multitude of 5,000 men alone. Well, it wasn't just that. It was that he had some deep, deep teaching to give to them that really separated people from him. Let's read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 59. Let's stand together for the reading, if you would. And we'll not read long, but verse number 59. These things said he, now this is after the feeding of the 5,000. He's already said much that we're going to make a reference to here in just a little bit. And it said, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this said, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? I want to read that again. Many, therefore, of his, say the word, please, disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, and who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend where he up, where he was before. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You ought to highlight that verse. Verse 64. But there are some of you that believe not. Uh, who did the Bible say that he was talking to? His disciples. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. 
And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter, one of two times that we love his response, uh, he said, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he, uh, for he it was that should betray him being one of the 12. Father, we are thankful tonight for your precious word. Thank you for the wonderful time we've already enjoyed uh, tonight and had our hearts affected and touched by the ministry and song, by the congregational singing, and certainly by the preaching of your word. So now, as always, we acknowledge, O oh God, our dependence upon thee. It is stated right here in our passage that the flesh profiteth nothing. Mere oratory, uh, mere uh, style is not able to change anyone. But your Holy Spirit must do the work. And we acknowledge that, O oh God. And pray for the unction and the working of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'd get glory to yourself and be with those that are in places of leadership and responsibility in their respective churches, whether it be pastor or deacon or uh, staff member of some sort. And bless those, oh God, that would turn aside on a Monday night like this to give attention to the word. They uh, most obviously care about your work and about your word. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit might work in such a way that we would be affected in the manner that you mean for us to be by considering the passage that is before us. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> One of the thrills of my life has been not only to pastor two wonderful churches, but the Bible college. And to see young men and women, I was eating lunch today with Brother Jacob and Brother Joe, and we was talking and they asked about our graduates and so forth, and I, I don't know how many are out there or that. I don't kind of follow those numbers. I do know that uh, I was informed here just a while back that those a uh, number of our graduates that are actually pastoring churches now, not counting the missionaries that are around the world, but we have over 150 that have graduated that are pastoring churches, and we thank God for that. But they're not all great stories. One notable graduate left Bible college and became a Calvinist. Another became a pastor of a Southern Baptist church. Another became a pastor of an inner non-denominational church, inter slash inner 
inter slash non-denominational church. Another came out of the closet as a sodomite. Another, and I should say then committed suicide. Another had a large ministry, was having his own Bible college, but left his wife for another woman. Another embezzled money and actually was imprisoned for a time. Another got into political pursuit and then was found to be an adulterer. Another became a defender of the NIV and every contemporary version that you can imagine and everything contemporary. I'm talking about notable graduates. And I can hear somebody saying, uh, well, what are you guys doing anyway? What are you doing there at Heartland? Like a Bible college can actually prevent that from ever happening. What are you guys, what kind of people are you putting out there? What are you doing anyway? I probably should have told you at the beginning of this that these were not graduates of Heartland Baptist Bible College. They were my classmates and schoolmates uh, 57 years ago. So that's a long time back. And people are concerned about, well, we're losing some here and there, and there are some turning the other way. I, I don't want to ever become indifferent to that or act like it's no big deal. I, that's not what I'm saying. But this issue was going on 50 years ago, and when I was 21 years of age, a preacher, no doubt, could got up and told stories about his day and time and a half a century in the ministry and tell stories of those that were failures and that turned aside. Somebody says, I know, but I mean, come on, 57 years ago, that was a long time ago. Right. Well, it wasn't as long ago as this. Many of his disciples turned and followed him no more. Now, we're not talking about a half a century or a century here. We're talking about millennia. And it, it was happening, excuse me, not to men that were trying to do the ministry, but to the Son of God. Many of his disciples turned and followed him no more. That's what the book says. Now, I realize that because of social media and the technology of the day, I understand this, that whenever there is any kind of a shift, whether it's of great magnitude or a minor issue, it's all of a sudden everything's a major issue once it hits the Internet and the social media circuit and such as that. And so when there is any kind of a movement or a shift, it is far well known far sooner than it used to be. And I think some of that has kind of heightened the hype about the concern of some that are actually departing from the right way or departing from the old path or departing from the fundamental position and such as that. I, I think that has caused a serious amount of alarm. But I just want to remind you, social media or no social media, Jesus himself dealt with this. Now, he absolutely did. 
And I hear today, I've heard for a number of years actually, that there'll be some of the preachers of my generation, they would get up and say, uh, they may be of a more broader mind and persuasion than some of us narrow-minded people. You know, he did say there is such a thing as a narrow way and a broad way. And that is not the matter of salvation there that Jesus is talking about. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the disciples and discipling his disciples and whether we're going to choose broad paths or whether we're going to choose the narrow way. And he told us, obviously, which one we're supposed to be on. But I mean, I've heard some of my own generation say, men, we've got to make some changes in how we do things or we're going to lose a bunch of good young men. I'm just telling you, times are changing, and this ain't the 50s anymore, or this ain't the 40s anymore, or this isn't the 60s anymore, and we're living in a different time. If we don't start changing how we're dealing with things, and even teaching these guys how to pastor churches, our whole culture is changing, and we're going to lose a bunch of people. And there'd be others that would say, amen. So changes took place, and consequently, you can, I could help you, and others could as well, around the country and show you churches that used to be, have the kind of fire this church has, has the kind of fire as is Southwest Baptist Church, had the soul winning fire, had the missionary fire, had a, a, a passion for godly music and, and gospel music, <laughs> music that would speak to the soul, not even thinking about entertaining the people. And, and standards of personal separation and sanctification is what it's called in the Bible. Not, not the sanctification that we're set apart unto Jesus and are saved. Not our positional, but our personal and practical separation. And they depart from that. You just can't preach that like you used to, we're told. And if we don't, we're going to lose a bunch of good young men. We're going to lose some churches. I can show you around the country where that mentality of, of broadening the thinking was embraced and I could show you property after property after property and some massive buildings that used to be filled with fundamental Baptists that if they are still a church are not recognized or recognizable as a Baptist church at all of any kind. And that's what's happened. Now, <clears throat> again, Jesus dealt with this. Many it didn't say a few. It said many. Turned and walked no more with him. And since that happened to Jesus, and we're concerned about it continuing to happen, and since with Jesus, it was very personal. Um, I've even had a, a, of our own graduates, I had a young man call me and he'd made a definite shift. He said, I'm sorry if this disappoints you, Brother Sam. And I said, well, this really isn't about me at all. This isn't a personal thing with me. Somebody changes their direction and they want to take a church. They want to get broad-minded about the versions and separation and music and the whole bit. They want to go the whole contemporary route. That, I, that is nothing personal. They don't owe me a thing. They don't. But with Jesus, it was personal. Because he was everything. I mean, he's the reason they were there. Come on, we, I don't have to preach on that. He is everything. And with him, it's very personal. 
so that when they turned and followed him no more. So what we ought to do, I remember some of the old preachers saying, uh, how are we going to deal with this? Or I remember getting phone calls. Here's what's happening. And a guy that we started a church and he's gone a different direction and we're his sending church and such as this. How should I deal with this? What should I do? Or Brother Sam, I've got staff members that are pushing me and bending me. I've actually had uh, men that were pastors that were dads whose own children on the staff were pushing them to go more broad and to change the music. And dad's succumbing to the pressure because mama's on the boy's side too. And, and things are changing like that. <laughs> what should we do? How should I deal with this? That's the wrong question. Since Jesus dealt with it, we should be asking, how did Jesus deal with this? Because we have it right here before us, how he dealt with it. In fact, Jesus, both by example and by what is said or taught of him, gives us reason to be careful and have caution about how we even use the word disciple. Now, in this day and time, people, I, you know, <laughs> discipleship is the big thing. Yeah, discipleship. You, you, what, what discipleship program do you use? I was asked that when I was still pastor. What, what discipleship material do you use? Uh, do you use brother so-and-so out here or over there? And they put out some great discipleship material. What do you use? Well, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus was doing, discipling his disciples. And somehow, preachers of our gen younger generation have been convinced that if you don't have special discipleship classes, or if you don't have a program of discipleship, then people cannot be discipled from the pulpit. I don't believe that. I'm, and I'm not against one-on-one -on -one discipleship. I've done, I think, my share of it. And I'm not against getting people aside for disciples. I'm not against that at all. But to think, I, I say, to think, that by biblical preaching, people can't be discipled and made disciples of Jesus Christ is to have a really low estimation of the effect of the preaching of the Word of God. Now, if you're not going to preach the Word of God, don't expect people to be discipled. If you're just going to preach from the Bible, some little fancy something, but you're not going to really preach what the Word of God says, don't expect disciples. But if you actually rightly divide the Word of Truth and actually feed the Word of God, and if you actually receive the Word of God, then expect people to become disciples whether they were ever <clears throat> discipled or not. I made this statement and got a rise out of uh, Brother Willette in a meeting. I said, if you, and I was talking about this very thing, and I was throwing a fit about it too, because it just burns me up, just to tell you the truth. And I, I, and I said, if you have nothing but the Sermon on the Mount, you're loaded. As a pastor, as a preacher, you're ready. You're ready to disciple people. That's what Jesus was doing when he gave the Sermon on the Mount was discipling his disciples. And nobody anywhere, Bible college or no Bible college, doctor or no doctor, nobody anywhere has a better discipleship program than Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Okay, some, not everybody's enjoying this, but it makes me feel better just to unload that. It, it is so helpful. Now, Jesus knew. I'm not going to have you turn back there for the sake of time, but John 2 is Jesus early in his ministry and 
getting a whole lot of attention. There in John chapter 2, uh, the scripture says at the end of chapter 2 that, uh, that there were many that believed in him. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now, here's what I found interesting. I thought, what does that mean that he didn't commit himself to? So I did a little word study and I found out this, that the word believe, many believed in him. And he did not commit himself. The word believe and commit are the exact same Greek word. They mean the same thing. So some of the people that uh, he, you know, in John chapter two, he'd done the marriage of Cana and his miracles began. And at the end, it says that many therefore believed in him, but he didn't believe them. That's what it says. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> it is. Because it means the same thing. When, when it says they believed in him, then it says, but he did not commit them, means that he didn't believe that they believed. Now, hold on just a second. It's not like Jesus said, I don't believe they believe. That's not what it is, because he knew all men. And he needed not that any should testify to him of man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus, knowing the people that were before him, he knew that some of them that believed didn't believe. Somebody said, this is confusing. Well, I didn't write the Bible. I'm just telling you what happened here. <laughs> that, that's where he was. You see, because there is such a thing as a disciple and a disciple indeed. I won't have you go to John chapter 8, but if you did, you could go over to John chapter 8 and you could see that Jesus said to them that when you do what I have taught you to do, then you are my disciples indeed. So are there some that would say, I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe that he is the son of God. I believe that he is the savior. Are there some of them that then would make decisions not to do what he said? Well, of course, we still deal with that to this day. That is nothing new and it's nothing that has been resolved since then. <laughs> Human nature, there are some people that would receive and believe the message and that he is the Messiah and that he is the son of God and that he went to the cross to pay for our sins and that he rose again from the dead, believe the message of the gospel, but then be somehow and for some reason unwilling to act upon what he says and to obey him and Jesus said, if you do what I tell you to do, then you're my disciple indeed. So is there such a thing as a disciple and then such a thing as a disciple indeed? Apparently. I don't know what else to make of it. You know what the word disciple means? You can study the definition yourself. Disciple, a learner. A pupil. That's basically it. When I started research, I expected this long, big thing. And I'm sure you could find somebody that wants to make it more complicated. But it's boiled down to this. To be a disciple means to be a pupil. It means to be a learner. One that would sit in a class and subject himself or herself to teaching and be a student of what is being taught. Be a pupil in the class. And if they receive what is said, then they can become 
disciples indeed. But though they are in the class and hear everything that the disciple indeed heard, may make choices that leaves them short of being a disciple indeed. Now, what are we interested in? Well, we're interested in whatever the Bible teaches us to be interested in. What does the Great Commission teach us about this? Well, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe what? All things whatsoever I've commanded you. Not just to gain intellectual knowledge about what Jesus taught and what his theology was and such as that, but he said, go teach them to do what? To observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, what is that supposed to accomplish? Disciples indeed. And that's what we're aiming for. Of course, that's what we're aiming for. It's never, it's always satisfying and joyful to see somebody come and confess Jesus Christ and believe in the gospel and follow the Lord in baptism, identify with the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's always a blessing to see. But the game isn't over there, my friend. We know that for sure, don't it? Now, what's going to happen to this person from here on? Because as they said under the word, are they going to embrace what is taught? Are they going to put it to practice just like we've been hearing from last night and tonight? Are, are we going to act upon what is taught? Well, that's the goal of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. In other words, make them disciples indeed. See, And that was the aim. And Jesus was at work doing that. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the account here in John 6, uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, and the incredible response that must have come from that, as multitudes, multitudes were very aware of this miracle, saw it, participated in it, ate the bread and ate the fish. In this, Jesus began to teach them that he is about himself, that he is not just a miracle worker, that he is actually the bread of life. And he begins to use what I, I read this somewhere and, and I like it. So I'm using it. I don't know who to give credit to, but anyway, I'll just say it that he begins to use the language of consumption. And we know what it is. How did they eat that bread? Well, they consumed it like we consume food. Like you did before you came here tonight, if you ate back there or wherever you ate, you take food, you eat it, you digest it, you consume it. You take drink, you drink it, you consume it. The language of consumption, but Jesus is not talking to them about bread and water to physically, bodily consume. And that's why he had already taught them and said that they ought to seek after the meat that does not perish. They ought to be concerned about the food that could never decay or mold or, or it can become no good. 
but what is eternal? So what he's doing is he uses the language of consumption and he begins to teach them. If you go through the body of the text, he begins to teach them that if you're, if you're going to be my disciple indeed, then you have to understand that I am the bread of life. And he taught every one of them, all of them. He said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't have life. Well, put yourself in their shoes. And you hear the teacher miracle worker <laughs> say, if you want to have life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How, uh, how would that have settled in your mind? Oh, I know what he means by that. Probably not. I'll run that by one more time. Oh, I know what he means by that. Just like that. Probably not. You needed some help. And so many of them were astounded. What is this kind of thing that he is saying? Remember, when Jesus talked like this, they weren't the, first, the last ones to be confused about it. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And this very highly intelligent grown man said, must I enter the second time into my mother's womb? So Jesus is, does talk in a realm that makes them stop and think. And they have to have some help. And he just did that here. You want eternal life? Then he said, I am the way of eternal life. And if you want eternal life, and it goes to the language of consumption, you're going to have to eat of my flesh, and you're going to have to drink of my blood. And there are people then that look at that and say, now this is a hard saying. This is a, what are we supposed to do with this? This is a very difficult thing. And that's why in the text that we read, Jesus comes down and explains to them, uh, the things that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. For the flesh profiteth nothing. So he's not talking to them, obviously, about the physical flesh that they must eat, but they must spiritually consume. He's using the language of consumption. And we know that he said to the lady at the well, he said that I want to drink of this water. And she said, I, I, I would love to have this water that will never let me thirst again. And so it had nothing to do with what was in the well but it had everything to do with what Jesus was offering her in himself and she drank by believing in him. That's what he's saying to them. They're gonna eat by believing he gave his body as a sacrifice for our sin. That when Jesus went to the cross, if there's an unbeliever in here tonight, I'm just telling you right now, there is no reason for you to die lost because Jesus bare your sins in his own body on the tree. And he took your sin upon himself. The verse that I think ought to be like John 3, 16 to Bible believers is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now Jesus knew no sin, but he became the sin bearer for us. He said, I'll take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. That's why I'm going to heaven. That's why you're going to heaven. Because of that. In other words, I had to eat and drink or I couldn't be saved. I had to see Jesus as the bread of life or I am spiritually starved and dead. I had to believe that he is the living water and drink by believing or I can never have thirst 
satisfied. Can't be. You got to believe. So what is Jesus telling them? Well, he's telling them you, 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 the reason you have a problem is you don't believe this. Because the scripture says, let me see. It says, what is that? Verse 66. From that time, they were struggling with this hard question. Oh, there's so much more to say, but I do want to respect time. Look at verse 6. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus knew why they were there. Bread, fish, miracles, Messiah, on the throne of David, liberation from Rome. You and I don't even know how to appreciate the oppression the Jews were under from Rome in every way. And liberation from the awful, awful oppression of Rome. And Jesus sitting on the throne of David, restoring Israel back to the prominent place in the world that it knew under David somewhat and Solomon for sure. Yeah. Jesus, he restore Israel, deliver us from that. Jesus said, no. No, that's not what I came. That will have to do with his coming again. But it's not why he came. His Messiahship at this point did not mean reigning and ruling like many thought and the disciples thought who kept arguing about who's going to be on the right hand, who's going to be on the left hand. It, it, it wasn't that. It was eternal life itself. And when they heard that, no more bread. We like the bread. We like the fish. Vegans and everybody like the fish. Yeah, we like that. No more. Now, how did Jesus deal with that when, if you can imagine the great multitudes that were there and they saw that many turned and followed him no more. I mean, just kind of picture Jesus with the 12 and they're walking away. Not a few, many. They're walking away. What did Jesus do? What was his response? And by the way, they weren't walking away because Peter was too harsh and demanding. They weren't walking away because Judas was a hypocrite. They were walking away because they didn't believe. There they go. Well, they had believed. We believe, we believe you're the Messiah. Who could do these things except God be with him? Same thing Nicodemus said. Well, you fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. So we believe you're the Son of God. Uh, turned the water into wine at the marriage of Cana. Other miracles taking place. Sure we believe. Then follow me. And they walked away because it was a hard saying and he wasn't meeting their expectation. And one thing you can see for sure, Jesus didn't say, wait, 
Wait a minute. Let me reword how I said that. Let, let, let me change my approach here a little bit. He watched him walk away. And he turned to the 12 and said, will you also go away? Because see, he didn't say, now we got to do whatever it takes to bring them back. We can't afford to lose these people. We've got to go get them. No, he turns to the disciples and said, now what about you? What's your answer? Will you also go away? What are you going to do? And I'm, I'm, I'm not happy to hear that somebody turns from the path or turns from the right way and turns from the truth and broadens their thinking to accommodate an ever-changing culture and society and who preaches and tippy-toes around Sunday after Sunday to make sure nobody could be offended about anything. I, I can't stand that. I can't stand that idea. It is repulsive and it is sickening. But here's the thing. There are those that do believe. And they believe as disciples indeed. And so what Jesus is saying to them basically is, there they go. I'm going to go with those that will go. And he turns to the disciples and said, will ye also go away? And Peter rightly answered and said, like where? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And Peter understood as many problems as he had and was about to have. He did understand this, that this was far more than just about bread and fish. This was far more about, uh, less about full bellies than people could possibly imagine. This was about the fact that Jesus is teaching that he is very life indeed. And Peter said, where could we possibly go? Thou hast the words of eternal life and we are sure that thou art the Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. There it is. And so here's what Jesus did. He went with those that would go. And those that turned away because they did not believe left because they did not believe. Excuse me, Jesus never failed them. It wasn't the disciples' sometimes difficult ways that offended them. Huh? They had nobody to blame. I said, nobody to blame. Here's what sickens me about today's time. When there are those that depart from the way and they depart from the old path and they depart to the broad path and to the broad way, it's because somebody hurt their feelings and because somebody made them have pain years ago and somebody didn't do things the right way and they're finding people to blame. Excuse me just a second. Somebody else's fault has nothing to do with whether you're gonna be devoted to Jesus or not. You're going to follow him or not? And if you're not, then you're not. If you're not, then it really doesn't matter if I fall flat on my face. It doesn't matter if somebody lets you down. It doesn't matter if circumstances are totally contrary to what you expected them to be. If you're devoted to him, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he never changes. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. Now, you're going to follow him or not? The title of the sermon, I guess it's time to give it. 
What's your answer? Because you and I have to face it too. You're going to follow him or not? What, what is your answer? And don't you know the disciples felt like, whoa, a huge spotlight put right on them. Now, what are you going to do? Yes or no? Follow me or not? Excuse me. Disciple indeed or a pupil that drops out of class? Which? Which? Lord, help us that we would make however often we need to make the determination that we will follow Jesus. To whom should we go? What or whom is there to follow? Your son Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the all in all. Maybe there's somebody here tonight influenced by somebody's podcast, influenced by somebody's Facebook or Twitter account, or X, or whatever's out there. Influenced by a book they read. Not the book, but a book. And they're kind of wavering in these matters. It may be doctrinal. It may have to do with personal sanctification. It may have to do with the authority of the Bible. It may have to do with the authority of the New Testament church of which they're a part. A plethora of possibilities. But I pray we would hear Peter's words. <laughs> to whom shall we go? There's no place else to go. There's no one else to go to. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. May that determination be ours day to day to day to day as we journey through this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Some are already at the altar, and if God's dealt with your heart, I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. If God's spoken to your heart and there's a need in your life, why don't you just respond however God has dealt with you.